Friends, if you have your Bible, open with me today to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to cover quite a bit of ground today. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important part of Peter because thus far, as Peter, as you remember, he wrote this letter to believers, people like you and I, people who have asked Jesus to forgive our sins on the basis of what he did for us on the cross. Christ took our, our, our sin to the cross through his atoning death on our behalf. And our faith in Him, God has given us new life. And Peter is writing to a group of people. They are Christians in five provinces, Roman provinces on the north side of the uh, Turkish peninsula as we know it today. Uh, those provinces along the Black Sea. And Peter's writing, as I think about it, because it has some bearing on this passage today, Peter's writing to a church that though he as known primarily as an apostle to uh, Jewish believers, because Peter was there at the, uh, at the founding of the church on the day of Pentecost. He preached that great message as the Holy Spirit prompted him. 3,000 people were added to the church that day. And, uh, and though he had a heart for his, his fellow Jews, that they accept Jesus as their Messiah, it was Peter himself that God first used for the church to spread to the Gentiles as he preached in the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and they saw the Holy Spirit fall upon the uh, Gentiles as, as they received Jesus as their Savior in the same way as he had on the Jewish believers at Pentecost. And Peter and all those with him said, how can we keep them from being baptized with water if God has immersed them and baptized them with his Holy Spirit? And so though we think of Peter as far more as a, as a speaker to the Jewish believers, Today we see that these churches he was writing to were primarily Gentile in nature. No doubt there were Jewish believers among them, perhaps some of those very people who had accepted Jesus uh, on the day of Pentecost and now had traveled back home to their home regions and were maybe even founders of those churches. We know only uh, about one of those provinces were provinces that Paul himself founded churches in. So these are churches, we don't know much about them, uh, though we know the areas they were in, and they were likely primarily Gentile in nature. Remember, Peter's writing to us, though, as people who are sojourners, were pilgrims, who are scattered among those five provinces. And as pilgrims today, we're scattered among the provinces of Canada. We still are those people. This is not our home. We're told that we have a wonderful salvation in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and it talks about our new birth. We've been born again into a living hope. But as we look at chapter 1, when Peter says you... It's you in the singular. He's speaking to you as an individual believer about the amazing salvation you have. Your redemption was costly. You weren't redeemed with something perishable like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. But now, as we come to chapter 2, when Peter, you see you in the Scripture, in English, it's a translation of the plural you plural. He's starting to talk to us now as a group of believers. Because chapter 1 reveals that these individual believers are going through times of testing and suffering where the trying and testing of their faith is proving it genuine, like the purest gold. But you know, when we go through trials, as we think of these last two years with COVID, 
one of the most difficult parts of it is that people were atomized. Groups that were whole were scattered. Churches were closed. Some churches had fences built around them because they wanted to gather together because we're stronger together. We're better together. People suffered so much in this pandemic because we were asked to suffer alone. Your sick family member alone in a hospital. Your senior saints locked in care homes apart from family. It hurts us to be apart. And Peter now recognizing the incredible importance of the fact that you're not saved to be a lone ranger. You're not a Christian in and of yourself. You are not living the life of a follower of Christ that God wants you to live if you're living it alone. And this isn't a knock to you who are home watching this on YouTube. But we were called to be a body. All of the metaphors that Scripture use of us as Christians are corporate group metaphors. Even that word corporate speaks of the corpus, the body of Christ, of which Jesus is our head. So we're going to move today to thinking about us as believers in a group setting. Now, the people of Israel, Peter's people, Jesus' people, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. We know Israel, God's chosen people, the apple of His eye. The entire Old Testament reveals the nature of those people, their ups and downs, all that they went through, God's hopes for them and who they were meant to be. We know that salvation comes through them because Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is the Savior of the world. We have a good idea of Israel, but what about what about us? What about the Christian church? What about the local bodies of believers, including our own church family? What about us? Well, first, let's think back to that strong identity of God's people in the Old Testament. What is God's ideal for the people of Israel? First, we know they were his chosen people. We often call them that. The Jews, God's chosen people. Just as Peter says in chapter 1, we are now chosen by God as well. Well, we know that God chose them not because they were better than anyone else, but He chose people way down the ladder of society. For instance, in Exodus 19, God tells Moses to pass this message on. He says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That are, These are the words you are to speak to Israel. God chose people ideally to be a, a nation of priests, people who would intercede for the nations around them and they would shine in in. in also, they would, they would uh, as priests intercede, they would take the needs of the nations around them to God and they would reveal God to the people around them like a missionary nation. And why did he choose them? As I said, they weren't great. Deuteronomy 7 points this out. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because... The Lord loved you. 
was because God loved you. He chose Israel because He loved them. And His ideal was for them to be a nation of priests, revealing God to the world around them, like a lighthouse. That ideal never came to pass. As we know the story of God's people in the Old Testament, it was the story of constant rebellion. It was failure. It was repentance. It was a cycle repeated again and again in the time of the judges. And then under the kings, it continued. Idolatry, rather than being people who revealed God to the nations, all too often God's people adopted the culture and religion of the nations around them, turning away from the true God to false gods. Throughout this long struggle, God still brought His good purposes to pass. And the Jewish Messiah came, though He was rejected by the majority of His own chosen people that He loved most. If that's the identity, the ideal, and the struggles of God's people in the Old Testament, I ask the question today, who are we? Who are we? We're not Israel as we see them in the Old Testament. I'm not speaking today and preaching on replacement theology, though in a sense we are the new Israel, as we'll see a little bit later. But who are we? Peter wants to get down to brass tacks and tell you the amazing things of who we are today and take courage from that. When we face times of trial, we can take courage and not only the great salvation we have into a living hope, but who we are corporately. He's moving now from your personal application of your salvation to the corporate application, us as a body of believers. As I said, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 4 this week. Peter uses a metaphor, and it's appropriate because what's Peter's name? In Greek, Petros, Peter means rock. <clears throat> we know in Aramaic, Jesus gave him that nickname, translated as Peter, rock in Aramaic is Cephas. His name, remember, he was born with was Simon. But Jesus named him Rock, Cephas, Peter. And so it's appropriate when Jesus uses prophecy and quotations regarding Jesus, he focuses on the one that calls Jesus a stone, a rock. And that's where we begin, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That's incredible. Corporately now, we're told not only is Jesus the long prophesied cornerstone, as we sang this morning, thank you Muriel for choosing that song, cornerstone. Jesus is the long prophesied cornerstone upon which God's family is to be built. But we, in turn, are being built into a spiritual house. The word there isn't temple. It's literally spiritual house. It's so that we don't get the wrong idea that it has to be a temple in Jerusalem. The temple that God is building is made up of all of His children. His temple is your heart in which His Spirit dwells his praises ring out in His spiritual house today. And that house is made up of you and I. We are the stuff it's made of. We too are living stones. 
Now, Jesus used that building metaphor himself. When I read Peter, I hear echoes of his master again and again. Paul, remember, met Jesus on the road to Damascus. But Peter lived with him for years as Jesus had his public ministry. And so the teaching of Jesus, as he would walk the dusty roads of Galilee and Judea, he would teach his disciples. They're called walking rabbis. The fancy word for walking is peripatetic, if you can believe it. He was a peripatetic rabbi. And the reason they walked and taught, their disciples gathered around them, they would repeat things again and again. And their disciples would commit it to memory and put it into action. Well, one of the things Jesus would teach is that he was building something entirely new. Jesus, even when he was in conflict with those that were opposing him, used that building metaphor. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, Oh, no, this is, this is not where they're in conflict. This is something that would be even more meaningful to Peter because this is Peter's confession of Christ at Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus said, well, who do the people say I am? And then Peter confessed their faith in him. In response to that, Jesus says in verse 18, And I tell you that you are Peter, you are rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Do you realize this is Jesus' first mention of the church? That this was something new that he was doing. This was an entirely new thing Jesus was going to build. No longer the assembly, the nation, the tribes, the people of Israel, but a solemn assembly, a gathering, the church. The Greek word is ekklesia. It's the first time Jesus mentions it. And he says, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. What had Peter just done? He had just confessed his faith in Christ. Some people look at that passage and they say, well, Peter is the foundation then. That means he's like the first pope. You know, there's a whole whole big section of Christianity worldwide who reads the passage that way. But Peter doesn't read it that way. Peter knows he's not the cornerstone. He's not the foundation. In fact, he teaches just the opposite. He said there is foundational people, the prophets and the apostles, as the apostle Paul taught the same thing. But it's all founded on Jesus. He alone is our cornerstone. Those who came before us and laid a foundation that we build our lives on and pass on that legacy of faith to others, we're thankful for those earlier people. But Jesus alone, He's the cornerstone. Paul, using a similar metaphor of Jesus building His church, is a wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in Ephesians a few times today. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, Consequently, speaking to us scattered Christians, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. That's exactly what Peter just said in other words, that we are living stones built into a spiritual house. 
in which a priestly function occurs. Paul says, we are being built. The Greek, it's very clear, he uses a perfect tense, which means he's talking about actions that God has begun in the past in your life and mine and continues right up till today and beyond. We are being built. We are not just set in place once and for all. The building of God's church is ongoing. And as living stones, sometimes we're tempted to think we don't really belong. We have no place. I know my life. You know your heart. You know how far short we fall of lives that are worthy of Jesus. So oftentimes, Satan uh, discourages us and wants us to, to draw back from the family of God that we are not fit material to be a living stone in a spiritual house. But friends, this passage says it's a process. It's an ongoing process. We started a new Sunday school curriculum today in adult Sunday school following the Messiah and their travel videos and we have teaching from the Holy Land and this morning one of the stops we made from Bethlehem was when Jesus was dedicated at the temple and they stood and looked at that great Herodian retaining wall built around the temple mount one of the few glimpses of the splendor of the temple from Jesus day I have a picture of some of the great stones there. Look at those. Those are enormous stones. As I mentioned, if you go to Egypt and see the Great Pyramid, those enormous stones, they're multiple tons. Three, five, six tons those stones weigh. You can't pick them up. But these enormous stones of the Temple Mount, some of them weigh almost 600 tons. And you say, oh boy, that's not me. Look at those stones. They're perfectly carved. And they fit together perfectly. There's not any cement, no rebar, no mortar at all. Gravity holds them in place. And they've stood for 2,000 years. And they're so finely carved and fitted that you cannot slide a razor blade between them. And we say, that's not me. My life is far short from that. God needs, to, God needs to do some work on me yet today. And yet that ongoing work never happened at the Temple Mount. Those stones, because it was not allowed to use an iron chisel to build the house of the Lord, all of those stones were carved off-site. Fifteen years ago, you remember politically because East Jerusalem is largely an Arab area. In fact, the Palestinian people say they want their capital to be East Jerusalem. Well, to kind of head that off at the past, the people of Israel begin to build neighborhoods and small towns all the way around in a ring around East Jerusalem. One of those settlements, those new neighborhoods, is a place called Ramat Shlomo. Shlomo means Solomon in Hebrew. Ramat Shlomo. They were building a school and they found a quarry, an ancient quarry. Not only was it a quarry, but this five-acre quarry, it was this quarry for these great limestone ashlers from the Temple Mount. It's where these stones were carved. All of the dirt and dust and muss and messiness of life, it was away from the Temple Mount. It was not allowed to be carved at the temple. They were carved and measured perfectly and then transported miles to the temple mount set perfectly in place. There was no fine-tuning. God does not want you as a finished pro product. He 
wants you as you are to be involved in his family an ongoing work <laughs> the church should not be a dry dusty sterile place it could get messy sometime as people struggle and grow and are challenged and grow again and that's what we're to be like it's an ongoing process as god carves away those parts of our lives that just aren't suitable it reminds me that we're not so much like these finished product, beautiful stones at Herod's temple. We're more like a different stone. It was an incredible stone, but it was a rejected stone too. The next picture is one of the most famous pieces of art in the world. It's Michelangelo's statue of David. You see how enormous this statue is by that, that uh, artistic restoration lady there because the statue's been damaged by multiple attacks throughout its lifetime. It has a very interesting history, that beautiful marble statue of King David as the young shepherd boy with his sling on his shoulder preparing to face Goliath. In 1460 in Florence, Italy, there was a famous artist. His name was Donatello. For those of you with teenagers or little kids, you know it's that Donatello, a teenage mutant ninja turtle. So was Michelangelo. All of those guys were from Florence, but they weren't turtles. They were Italian artists. Now, Donatello was given an incredible task. The world's largest church had just been built in Florence. It still stands there today called, in Italian, Il Duomo, the Great Dome. It was the largest dome built in the world to that point. After a thousand years, a dome built bigger than the Hagia Sophia Church in Constantinople. So to decorate this church, they wanted 12 monumental statues of biblical figures around it. And the greatest one was to be King David. For a great statue, you needed a great piece of marble. They quarried Carrera marble hundreds of kilometers away. And by ship, they sailed it across the sea, hauled it over mountains and dusty roads, and they got it to Florence, Italy. Donatello assigned, he didn't think he was up to the task, so he assigned the task of carving King David to uh, uh, Antonio, oh, his last name slips to mind, Antonio di Antonici, I think was his name. He was a famous artist at the time, not at the level of Michelangelo, of course. And this was 1460. He tried his best. He worked on it for six years and he failed miserably. They assigned the statue to another artist. He too failed. This enormous stone, in fact, the stone was legendary. They called the stone El Gigante. They called it the giant. It was 17 feet high, this piece of marble. And these men, it was just too much for them. It was too tall. It was too narrow. They just couldn't do anything with it. They gave up after six years. And this stone was so damaged by their futile attempts that it was put into a warehouse and forgotten. It lay forgotten and rejected for 40 long years. Donatello had died decades before. And finally they said, we need to take another run at that statue of David. It's now the year 1500. In 1501, they talked to the local artists. Leonardo da Vinci. He looked at the stone. Couldn't do it. It was beyond him. They offered it to more artists. And finally, 
that man with the last name Buonuarte, but his first name was Michelangelo, he looked at it and said, oh yeah, I see something special inside this stone. And he began that long work. For two and a half years, nobody saw him. He took the giant and he isolated himself. They just took him food. They took him drink. And for two and a half years, nobody saw him. So he took away everything that didn't belong on that stone and was left with his greatest masterpiece. Friends, that's what we're like. God doesn't want you the finished pro product. In this life, He is working on you. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. In building His church, He's building His people as well. God is at work on you today. Peter continues in this passage by quoting the Old Testament. Remember, in Peter's time, he's writing a New Testament letter, a part of the New Testament, but the Bible of the church he's writing to is the Old Testament. And so speaking of Jesus as the living stone, Peter continues by quoting passages from Isaiah and the book of Psalms in the Old Testament that prophesied about Jesus. Peter says, picking up in verse 6, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Jesus himself took these prophecies to speak of himself. And he warned the people of his time that there were consequences, severe, dire consequences in rejecting God's cornerstone. Jesus says, for instance, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will, who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Friends, people are still rejecting Jesus as the cornerstone today. As Paul said, and it's not on the screen, but remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those of us who believe, the power and the wisdom of God, Christ our cornerstone. I love that song. Not only, friends, are we living stones in a spiritual house, but Peter continues. He says, we are a holy and royal priesthood. Not only is there a spiritual house that God is building a temple from the hearts of His people, but those people who dwell therein have a priestly function. Just as the Lord's ideal for Israel was to be a nation of priests mediating and interceding on behalf of a hurting world with the love of Jesus. That's what we're to be now. We're to play that role. To continue back up in verse 5, the spiritual house, the second part of verse 5, Peter writes, 
He says we're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That we, since the day of Pentecost, as God empowered His people with His Spirit, we, everyone, have a priestly function. We believe in the priesthood of believers, not individuals, not clergymen, not pastors or, or priests or bishops. Everyone, you have a priestly function as a child of God. The priest, remember, did a couple things. He took the needs and the hurts of the people and he took them to God. And he stood in God's presence, whether it be the high priest and the holy of holies once a year on the day of atonement or the other priests serving in the outer courts. You took the needs of the people to God. And you took God's love and wisdom and answer to the people in need of hearing from God. You went back and forth between them and represented them to one another. That's a priestly function. And of course, the other is the sacrificial system to offer sacrifices. The people of the old temple, those were animal sacrifices, the shedding of blood, grain sacrifices, and so forth. But throughout the Old Testament, we see other sacrifices. We see prayer called a sacrifice. We see service called a sacrifice that people could offer up. And these are the sacrificial lives that you and I, as people who are a priesthood of believers, are called to live. That's the profound meaning of passages like Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Make my life a prayer to you. May our lives be our worship. How we conduct ourselves. God's love that we show at home, at work, with anyone who crosses our path. Living sacrificial lives. And remember, sacrifice for a believer, that sacrificial love following in Jesus' steps is to put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Yesterday at men's breakfast, we talked about in marriage, husbands are called to love their wives as Jesus loved the church, sacrificially, putting her first. Well, this is how we as Christians are supposed to treat other people living sacrificial lives. The book of Hebrews says that our worship is a sacrifice as well. Our worship and our service. Hebrews 13 The author of Hebrews says in verse 15 and following, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confesses His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. With such sacrifices, God is pleased. Your love, your generosity, your service for others, your praise, your worship, your love songs to God, those are sacrifices that please our Father. So we as a nation of priests, we serve and we love and we represent God to others and we intercede for them in our prayers and we represent God to them as we tell them of His love and show it practically through our actions. <laughs> For we know that we can call men priests, but there's only one true mediator. 
We reflect Him. The Scripture is very clear. First Timothy, the Apostle Paul tells us that truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. Jesus is the great high priest. We serve under Him. He's the great high priest. Well, there we are. Living stones in a spiritual house. Holy and royal priesthood. Priests of the King. Peter doesn't finish there. He encourages them one final time that they who were scattered, they who were divided, because remember, these churches, as I mentioned at the outset, are made up of Jews and Gentiles, people who are born to hate one another. They're so different. They look down on one another. That's a terrible thing where you both look down on each other. You both put yourself above the other. The Gentiles thought the Jews were backwards and their religion was barbaric. And they were cultured, philosophically advanced. And the Jews, though they're near to the true God, they think the pagans and the Gentiles are just lost and foolish. How can you make a body, a building, and a church of these separate groups. Well, Peter says we are. We're one. We are the people of God. It's made up of people. All of us. No matter how different. Verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Peter, though he could go into great depth, skips right over the Jew and Gentile division and says, you are one. He'd experienced it. He'd seen it with his own eyes. They are one. The Apostle Paul again in Ephesians chapter 2 says, Jesus did an amazing thing. He took Jews who were near to God but outside of Christ, rejected Him as their Messiah. He took the Jews who were near and the Gentiles who were far and He made of them one new kind of person. A new man, He calls it. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile. Just Christian now. Just child of God. Adopted into His family. Just a follower of Jesus. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man, out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. We are one. And we finish with that. The unity of the body of Christ, the spiritual house, the unity 
is so important to the Lord. It's such a powerful witness to the world. When Christians argue, fight, and divide, the cause of Christ comes to a standstill. People need to see us united of one heart. These small things, political issues, they seem big to us at the time, but in the light of eternity, they're nothing. What unites us is Jesus. We're one in Him. And so we finish with Paul's imploring us in Ephesians chapter 4 to protect at all costs the unity of the body. Protect the peace we share. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you who are called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We're one. We need to recognize it. We may be pilgrims and scattered and struggling and suffering, but we can make it because we are one. We're the body of Jesus. We're the family of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the cornerstone. We thank You for Jesus. Lord, His love for us as You chose us, not because we had anything to commend ourselves. We were lost. We were so far away. But You chose us out of Your great love and mercy to do something amazing in the eyes of this world. Jesus, the cornerstone rejected by men, Lord, You have built a spiritual house made up of living stones. And Lord, we are more like the sculpture's studio with the clinging of chisels and hammers and marble dust filling the air because You're at work not only on Your house, the church, but on us, the living stones. Lord, make us day by day to be more like Jesus. Carve away the broken rock and reveal the beauty of Jesus within. And Lord, as You do so, may we live up to Your ideal to be a nation of priests, to take this hurting world's needs and storm the gates of heaven with our prayers, to come before Your throne of grace. And Lord, to take Your love and the good news of the Gospel to a hurting world that needs it. And Lord, may our lives, our daily lives, not just Sunday, but every day, be an act of worship and faith. May our lives be a sacrifice that You find pleasing. Lord, thank You for this good news that we're saved not to be alone, to be part of Your family. We thank You for that and send us out, Lord, to share this good news with a hurting world. We ask it all in Jesus' loving name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.